Hey, welcome everyone. This is a uh, another podcast for Flyover Labs, and today we are lucky enough to have a uh, Steve Grundle, who's the president of Midwest Prototyping in uh, the large metropolis of a uh, Blue Mountains, Wisconsin. <laughs> Steve, thanks for uh, joining us. Oh, thank you, Dave. It uh, should be fun. So, so how did you uh, originally locate in the uh, Blue Mountains? Uh so uh, for those of the people that don't know, Blue Mountains is just a small town outside of Madison, about 25 minutes west of Madison. Uh, I grew up out in this area. I grew up on a dairy farm south of Mount Orb, which is another adjacent village. And, uh, you know, eventually went on to college, lived away for a while, but wanted to come back to this area. And uh, quite frankly, there was some space available and eventually some land available to build out here. So this is uh, is where the company has been located. And so for everyone out there, Midwest Prototyping is a a 3D, which... Steve can get into more details. A 3D printing company that's been around for, I think, almost is it 15 years? Yeah, we started in uh, early in 2001. So, wow. And uh, um, and right now, how many employees do you have? And uh, approximately, what have your sales been? Um, we have, uh, I think, we're at 30 employees right now, and our sales are about five million dollars annually. Wow. Okay. And and you were pretty young when you uh. When you were you started, how how did you uh, how did you get going, or what was kind of the premise behind it, or the idea, or? Sure. So, well, for one, I'm not as young as I look, but yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I did uh, uh, I did go to school eventually at Milwaukee School of Engineering, uh, where I earned a degree in mechanical engineering. And at the time, this would have been in the early '90s. Uh, MSOE had a stereolithography machine or SLA machine as we call them today. And this was the first technology, you know, of what is now called 3D printing. And I learned about it in college. I never physically touched the machine they had, um, but they were one of the first universities to have one of these machines. It was pretty groundbreaking at the time to see one in that setting. And I just uh, used it like our customers use us today. I would turn in a file from one of my design projects and, you know, a week or 10 days later, in that case, get a part back. And, uh, like a plastic sort of, part? Like yeah, a, just okay. a plastic yeah. part. I remember making some parts we used for casting patterns and things like that. Um, and it just sort of planted a seed in the back of my head that this was a very different way to uh, develop products and make things. And... Uh, long story short, several years later, uh, I was looking to move back to the Madison area and, uh, didn't see any jobs that interested me at the time. And, and I had sort of kept track of this technology along the way. So I looked into it to, you know, see where, where it was being accepted and, and how it was developing and decided to buy a machine and start a company. Huh. Interesting. And, and how... How did you get going? How uh, how did you did you find a customer? Did you have to take a loan out? Um, yeah, how, how yeah, it's a good question, and that took a while. So what I did um, as I was investigating the technology and understanding, you know, what equipment was on the market and what the you know the ancillary equipment requirements would be, all those sorts of things. Um, in parallel with that, I was sort of investigating who in this area could benefit from it. Who you know who could my customers potentially be. Um, and I, uh, ultimately, you know, I didn't have any customers first, but ultimately I became confident enough, you know, in a, 
in my idea and wrote a, a business plan and, and then spent a lot of time trying to con, uh, convince the small town bankers uh, what stereolithography <laughs> was and, and why it made sense to, uh, you know, to give someone who had never done the process before money to buy a machine. Uh, and who, who, uh, who did you finally convince? Uh, guys at the state bank across Plains, uh, took me up on it and, uh, you know, we're wow. still, still customers of them to this day. So huh. interesting. That, that was a good, a uh, good risk they took. <laughs> well, hope so. <laughs> at least so far. Now what, uh, and you, so do you disclose some of your clients? I, I know you've worked with some really interesting clients over the years. I don't know how public those are, but, uh, yeah, um, certainly we can talk about who some of our clients are, um, and they range from, you know, small independent inventors and researchers at universities, uh, you know, small startups like that that you've never heard of, up to, you know, very significant companies. We do a lot of work for uh, Sub-Zero, for example, uh, Trek Bicycle, uh, G Healthcare. Um, who else? Uh, you know, we do a lot of work that ends up at Boeing, for example. Um hmm through one of their uh, vendors and design firms. So uh, we touch big companies and very recognizable projects, and uh, then we touch a lot of people and, and products you've never heard of and likely will never interact with. Huh, interesting. And and so when you – let's go back to when you start out. When you start out, what was the first machine you bought, and how is that machine compared to, compared to the present-day machines that you have? Yeah, so what I bought was sort of the standard entry point for the industry at the time, um, and that was uh, 3D Systems is still one of the major players in, in the 3D printing world, and they had a stereolithography machine called the SLA-250, and uh, that's what I purchased. Um, it had a 10 by 10 inch uh, by 10 inch cube build area, hmm. um, so that was the maximum single part size. Uh, it had a gas laser, a helium cadmium laser, that was painfully slow compared to our current machines. But at the time, of course, it was pretty amazing. So, um, oddly enough, the technology is still very much the same today. The principles are the same, but of course, there's been, you know, tremendous gains in laser technology. Everything's solid state now. Uh, the software, of course, has improved. The computer power. Uh, so the uh, the physical process still very much the same, but the control and the speed is much much higher today. Gotcha. Okay. And, and the size? Of the-, uh, the size now today, we still have some machines that are in that ten by ten by ten category, but our largest SLA machines now are twenty five by twenty nine by twenty one inches. So wow. okay. considerably larger and, and faster. Interesting. How how much faster are they? Do you remember uh, how long it took for? Yeah, it's it's you know you'd have to build an equivalent part on both machines, and I don't know that we've done that side by side test. Um, but as an example, the uh, uh, gas laser in our SLA two hundred and fifty would operate at about forty milliwatts. Uh, you know when things were going well, and the power was kind of variable. Our solid state lasers in some of our bigger machines now operate at about a thousand milliwatts, so uh, far more curing wow. power. Uh, the scan speeds are much much higher, and uh, you know, of course, time is money, so everybody wants it to be faster. Interesting. And uh, <laughs> one last question on the the start of uh, Midwest prototyping: How 
uh, what was the first project that you worked on and how did you get it? Um, if you remember. <laughs> so, you know, I remember building first parts in the first day or two that we had the machine and those were simply calibration parts and things like that, that we needed to get the machine dialed in and, and prove things out and, and learn, uh, as I got comfortable with the machine. Um, the first customer project, I don't honestly remember the exact parts, but I do remember the customer, and they're still a customer today and, and have become pretty good friends, honestly. And, uh, you know, so that's very gratifying. I, I The company does a lot of uh, electronic components, so I'm sure it was an enclosure for some of their electronic components that, uh, you know, we've done many times for them in the years since. Interesting. Uh, I always like the story when uh... – um, first starts off as business and becomes uh, friends over over the years. Yeah, we've uh, we've developed a lot of great relationships with, with some of our clients, and clearly that's one of the more gratifying parts of all this. So makes sense. So, and uh, probably a lot of projects you can't uh, disclose, but I'm curious what what are some one or two of the kind of the more interesting uh, projects you worked on. Um, yeah, um, well, that's a good question. You're right. You know, we're we're under non-disclosure confidentiality agreements with the vast majority of our customers. But uh, you know, I get the question a lot about what's the sort of the coolest or most interesting project. <laughs> and honestly, I've never been able to provide a good answer. And part of the reason is uh, because of the confidentiality, number one, but also the number of different projects we see and the variety of customers we meet is really the fun part of all this and that's constantly turning over so your favorite project in some ways is you know is maybe the last one and the project itself may not be that interesting but when you hear the you know the process that the customer went through or what they're trying to accomplish with it or what their hopes are for the market um you know we become a little bit invested in in what they're doing and you know we're just a service we're an outside vendor but we become a partner uh in some way in their journey so you know, we're constantly learning. Uh, we're constantly seeing new things, and uh, that makes it very interesting. Uh, one recent project that comes to mind we did for the uh, Nemours Children's Hospital in Wilmington, Delaware. And we printed a copy of the spine of a young girl that had a severe deformity. I assume it was scoliosis or something along those lines. Um, and the chief surgeon told us that the model uh, of her spine was going to be used as a teaching aid during her live surgery. Uh, they had 12 attending surgeons that were there to learn uh, and observe. And the idea that the technology is being used to directly improve quality of life of people and, you know, educate surgeons and doctors is uh, is incredibly gratifying. And, uh, you know, those are those are projects we make sure to show everybody in the shop and you know, make sure that uh, all of our employees understand the impact that this technology can have. Interesting. Yeah, that that helps you uh, get up each day when you have projects like that. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I, I'm sure you've helped lots of. But no, that's a good answer. So I think I think you do have a good answer now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'll be different next time. That's so. right. Now, now you have a go-to answer. Uh, so, how many machines? Uh, so I'm gonna ask some questions about your current machines and how many, how many machines do you uh, currently have and uh, what, what do they do? And um, I'm, I'm also kind of, this is probably too many questions. Also curious how they compare to 
you know the three machines you see like in hacker spaces or you can buy them for home and sure yeah um we currently have 15 different machines oh wow um, and those fall under all fall under the umbrella of 3d printing but those 15 different machines are spread across five different technologies so when someone says 3d printing or a 3d printer that's a very generic term um at least the way it's used today. So uh, there are at least seven different categories identified of types of 3D printers. And in those seven different categories, official categories, you know, there's dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of different manufacturers and types of machines. So you may go to your local high school or your local tech college and see a a benchtop 3D printer, or maybe a friend has one in, in their basement or in a hacker space, like you mentioned. Typically, those are small, relatively inexpensive filament-based printers, um, and they work great for certain applications. Uh, we don't we don't make our living with those. Um, they uh, they're not fast enough. The resolution isn't high enough, um, and they're not reliable enough. But they're great, and we love them for the fact that. People are getting exposure to 3D printing. They're understanding the value of it. They're coming in with some basic knowledge of how it works. So, you know, they're entry-level, hundreds or a couple thousand dollar type machines, and uh, and they're fantastic. We're a couple steps up from that, uh, where we're buying industrial quality machines, uh, anywhere from 50000 would be our cheapest machine. Uh, our most expensive is over eight hundred thousand dollars so uh big investment you know we need to keep them running we need to keep them maintained well Uh, and and that's kind of where we're at so if if you come here for a tour you'll see uh all these different machines uh being called 3d printers but all doing very different things Uh, some use a laser to solidify a liquid some use a laser to uh, center or melt a plastic together uh, some use a uh, filament deposition, like I talked about, kind of like the benchtop machines, just the industrial version. Uh, others use a photopolymer gel that's jetted out and then cured with an ultraviolet light. And our final one uses a uh, powder bed and prints a binder to bind the powder together and hold it in a solid form. Huh. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know you had 15 machines. That's a lot. And how how do you know what type of machine to use for the whatever project you're working on? Yeah, so that's a good question, and it's a little different with each customer. Uh, some customers, you know, have been with us for a while, have, have come here, spent some time, understand the materials, understand the processes, will simply request what they think they need. Uh, other customers come to us saying, hey, I don't know much about this. Can you give me some guidance? And certainly th- that's a very big part of what we do here. Uh, on a daily basis. Uh, so we would ask questions about what's their intended use, you know, what are the what are the critical considerations? Is this about a cosmetic finish and it needs to look perfect for a trade show or for an executive presentation? Or is this uh, something that they're making and they want to test, you know, field test on a piece of agricultural equipment or a recreational vehicle for 30 days or 60 days? And ultimately durability is the real concern and cosmetics don't matter because it's going to get messy anyway. Uh, so we're trying to understand where in the, in the use spectrum 
their expectations are. And from there, we can guide them to uh, different processes, different materials, uh, different surface finishes, and, uh, you know, come up with a suitable solution. Interesting. Yeah, we we could have a whole interview just on probably all that right there. But (laughs) but we don't want to... We don't want to get too much into details right now. Um, but, yeah, I'd love to learn more about that. Um, so with your machines, you know, let's go back to that uh, the spine example you gave. Mm-hmm. How what, what can you do with your machines or versus, let's say, with one at the hacker space? You know, what would the difference be sp- printing off that spine on uh, your machines versus one at a hacker space? Um, well, one of the biggest differences, most of the, the benchtop type, uh, consumer grade machines have relatively small build areas, uh, five by five inch or maybe 10 by 10 inch, uh, build areas. And the spine itself that we made was probably 22 inches long. Um, so one physical size, you know, they wouldn't be able to make it in one piece, um, would have to section it together, which still works in some cases. Um, the other is the speed with which we're able to make it. Um, that's the kind of thing where, you know, in our workflow that, that part comes in, goes into our system, it's printed overnight and, uh, you know, some time to cool down the next day and, and it's ready to go out the door. So, uh, very quick turnaround. Um, and, you know, in a case like a, a surgery that was obviously it has to be there on time or it's of no value. Um, and then the surface finish, the resolution of the surface would be better uh, on the equipment we have versus a typical benchtop kind of machine. Interesting. All right. That makes sense. Um, I, so what was, what's your – could you describe your one of your most advanced machines? I mean, you mentioned one that was up to 800000 I don't know if that's the most advanced. It sounds like it's the most expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, but just uh, what can it do and – what do you, what type of projects do you typically use it for? Yeah, so it's it's hard to think of what's the most advanced because they all do the same thing in different ways. You know, you're always adding layer upon layer in some fashion. Um, so it's all different approaches to uh, to printing. Um, certainly, that machine I referenced is a laser sintering machine, and you know its its advantage is it's remarkably consistent, um, very proven sort of result. So we know that we're going to get parts of, you know, X quality dimensions within these tolerances. It's going to build, you know, in, in this amount of time. And it's just sort of a very robust and proven, um, platform. Uh, so it's about the speed. It's about the consistency. It's about the repeatability and, uh, you know, having a real uh, industrial asset uh, that we can count on time after time versus sort of a uh, experimental or hobbyist uh, type machine, which is, you know, how some of this industry could have been described over the years as, as this technology developed. So, I, and, we, and I probably should ask this question at the beginning, but for those who are not sure how the 3, 3D printing works, can you... Uh, describe the process like maybe with the the laser centering just how it adds layers and how the machine uh, essentially works yeah so uh 3d printing 
um, I kind of alluded to, it always uses a layered process. So um, one analogy I give to people sometimes is if you took a, a sliced loaf of bread and you stood it up on end, you'd have all those, la- those uh, slices of bread stacked on top of each other. And that's kind of what we do. We take your CAD model that you would email to us, and we inspect it. We determine which orientation we're going to, to create it in. And then our software slices that model into slices, uh, just like the loaf of bread. And then the printer creates one slice. Uh, there's typically a build platform or a bed of some sort that that lowers and then some more material is added on top of that first slice that's already created, uh, solidified or hardened or whatever the process may be, uh, could be deposited. But somehow we've got an object there, the beginning of an object. We put more material on top, and we solidify or create that second layer and bond it to the first layer. So you're adding the second slice of bread, you're adding the third slice of bread to recreate that loaf, and that's how, uh, that's a sort of a basic explanation of what happens in the, in the process. We take a virtual representation of that loaf of bread, we create imaginary slices, we go to the machine, and then we make real slices and, uh, and stack them back up. I've, n- I've never heard the sliced bread analogy. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I'm going to use that one. And uh, so, and how, how thin are the slices? Typically? Uh, depends on the machine, but a, a number of the machines we run have, uh, Four thousandths of an inch, uh, so about the wow. thickness of a sheet of paper, or uh, the thickness of a human hair is another uh, another uh, reference point that's often given. So quite thin. Yes. Yeah. Super thin. And we do it. We do have some machines that can go even finer than that. So. Wow. Huh. Interesting. And uh, how long? Well, I guess it probably depends upon the, what you're actually printing. But it doesn't say how long it takes to put down a layer, but it probably completely depends upon the the volume of material you're putting down. Yeah, so it depends on the volume of material. It depends on the particular technology we're using. Um, just to give a rough idea, you know, much of what we do here, we interface with our customers. We collect orders throughout the day. Uh, we program the machines in the afternoon, start them in the evening before we go home, let them run overnight, and typically by the next morning, uh, the builds are done, and we've got parts created overnight. And then we start the cleanup and the post-processing and the uh, QC measuring, uh, all those protocols, and then they go off to shipping. So much of what we do is in and out of our hands in less than 24 hours. Wow, Um, That's that's a fast turnaround. Now, the flip side is, you know, sometimes we have builds that will take five, six, seven days where the machines will run continuously. And that's typically a very large batch of parts. Um, that's one interesting thing about 3D printing is as long as there's room on the platform or in the build chamber, you can keep adding and nesting parts. So we can build parts from multiple customers in one run or in one batch. And that's very different from traditional manufacturing wow. like yeah. CNC or injection molding or casting, things like that. So, uh, so that that adds a whole new dynamic to workflow planning and uh, and just sort of keeping everything moving in the right direction. So we're getting towards the end of the interview here, but so let's talk a little bit about the the future. You've you've been a part of this 
uh, 3D printing industry for a long time. Uh, a very broad question, <laughs> where do you see it headed? I mean, do you see, uh, I, I imagine there's always going to be a, a big need for very advanced machines, but then I guess there could also be more home use as well. Um, yeah, what, what's yeah so the vision for the industry is a little bit uh, of a moving target. It's almost, honestly, it's almost a full-time job just trying to keep up with daily developments and equipment, software, <laughs> materials, and then applications is the most interesting part, you know, finding out how people are using these technologies. Uh, everybody's seen, you know, various news clips about everything from, uh, you know, 3D printed drones to 3D printed clothes to 3D printed chocolate, and, you know, it's 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 sort of overwhelming. Uh the flip side of that is then, you know, from my perspective, I'm very interested in the business changes, the mergers and acquisitions, and who the new entrants are into the market and what the new technologies are. Um, so it's pretty hard to predict where the industry will go. Uh, you know, in some respects, it's going everywhere. And uh, that sounds, you know, sounds a little crazy, but I'm pretty confident saying that uh, over time, 3D printing will have an impact in almost all areas of our lives. Um, whether we know it or not. Hmm. Uh, I do feel that we're a generation or two away from really capitalizing on this technology. Uh, and the reason being uh, is that as children now learn how to design with complete freedom of design. Uh, that's one of the things that 3D printing offers that we haven't really talked about. But you're not constrained by the restrictions of traditional manufacturing where, you know, you have to get a cutting bit in from this angle or a drill bit in from this side, or you can't cast it or you can't machine it or you can't do whatever. There's always some restriction and 3d printing because we're doing this layered vertical construction, this additive construction versus a subtractive process. Uh, we can do things that just physically weren't possible in the past. Uh, and as, children now learn how to design without the burden of these restrictions that guys my age uh, have been taught all through, you know, high school and college and learning how to make things. Um, I think we'll really see the power of their imaginations uh, blend with the ability of these amazing technologies. Well, that's interesting. I never thought about that. But that, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, you, you probably see examples of that all the time new new ideas come in and yeah we you know we print parts and you just sort of look at it and think i would not have thought of doing it that way <laughs> <laughs> and uh and and again i believe we're just scratching the surface of that uh, you know but by, by the time i'm uh retired and hopefully <laughs> have grandchildren someday i can't wait to see what uh you know what they're doing and what they're creating and uh what uh and maybe you know some of the machines coming down the pipeline, but uh, you know what, what would be, what are some of the machines coming down the pipeline, or what would a, a machine that you're excited for that's not out out there yet, but you wish was? Is there anything? Um, yeah, that's a good question. There's, I mean, there's a lot of stuff coming, and a lot of it's just variations on you know similar theme, a little bit faster, a little bit. Uh, more precise, a little bit better resolution, things like that, and and that that makes sense. That's a typical progression. But uh, you know, we need faster machines. There's no question that uh, everybody wants faster, and, and that makes sense. But honestly, many of my desires are around the materials. Uh, 
Um, I think the significant gains uh, are to be made in the materials area. Uh, when the day comes that we're able to 3D print with some of the, you know, the super materials, the composites, nanomaterials, graphene, things like that, uh, the possibilities will be hard to comprehend. You know, unheard of material properties and strengths combined with complete freedom of design will change the world in ways that I can't even imagine. Interesting. Uh, so I look at, you know, 3D printing works. The process is proven. There's a number of different ways to do it. There will continue to be new ways. But until we're printing with really game-changing materials, um, you know, we're, we're making just basic progress. That will be the real leap. And what materials do you print in with now? So we print with a number of different plastics. Between the 15 machines we have, I think we have somewhere in the range of 40 different materials we can choose from. Hmm. Uh, almost all of them are plastic-based in some manner, some being real thermoplastics like nylon, like ABS plastic, uh, others being epoxy resins that are uh, intended to simulate the properties of typical engineering thermoplastics. So um, we do have uh, one metal and plastic hybrid. We run an aluminum and nylon filled material. Um, we don't, as a company, personally have a metal printing machine yet, but they do make metal 3D printers. So you can print in titanium, you can print in cobalt chrome or in stainless steel or things like that. Uh, that's certainly something we are and have been watching very closely. Um, it's just determining the right entry point for us as a company. Gotcha. That makes sense. Well, I think we're about out of time here, uh, but definitely uh, really appreciate you uh, coming on the on the podcast for Flyover Labs. And this is uh, quite quite interesting. I, I knew a little bit about your background in Midwest prototyping, but I definitely learned a lot. So, well, good. Um, well, thanks for having me on. I know uh, I, I feel like my answers are all over the map, but that's quite honestly kind of where the industry is right now. And uh, you know, there's a there's a million tangents we could go off on, but uh, I tried to keep it as focused as possible. No, that's been great. Well, I think that's 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 the interviewer who's uh, probably all over the place. So that's just <laughs> that's how I roll. So that's, everyone can blame me for that. But no, uh, no problem. <laughs> all right. Well, I, I appreciate it. Thanks, Steve. Thank you so much, Dave. Take care.